Praise the Lord. The reason why we can have a missions conference is because of the cross. Amen? I appreciate that very much. And glad you're here tonight. And I want to just say this. I hope that you'll plan on being back tomorrow night. And uh, Friday night is always the night that I think people struggle the most. And so I always plan it this way. Tomorrow night, I have one of the most encouraging messages for you. And I'm gonna, it's timed. It's not too long. And it's very encouraging. And so I want to encourage you to come out tomorrow night. And it'll be wrapped around a truth that you've probably heard. But I think we're going to take it to an extent that more than likely you've never heard before. I feel pretty confident. And so I hope that you'll come tomorrow night. I promise you, you'll be encouraged by the message. Uh, and so please, please be here uh, for that tomorrow night. All right? Well, tonight we're going to go... Uh, I've, I've, you know, I've been reading through the book of Revelation in my Bible reading, and it's good for a missionary to read his Bible, amen? And, uh, and so one of the things that I asked the Lord, I think probably one of the hardest things about resigning the pastorate for me was, you know, I miss preaching through, you know, four sermons a week, basically, and, uh, you know, I told the Lord, you know, that, you know, you hate to not be getting fed that way, and uh, the Lord's been really good as we've been traveling, been reading the Word, been giving me things. And so this afternoon, uh, while the ladies were out shopping, and I appreciate Mrs. Prayer taking my wife and uh, daughters out shopping today, I was typing the message. And uh, so listen, if it's a disaster, uh, just let me know so I won't preach it anywhere else. Amen? And, but I want to encourage you to stand, uh, if you have your Bible, and take the Word of God to Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 tonight. A phrase here that, we're going we're gonna to preach the text in context, but there's a phrase here that I read, I don't know, it was a couple weeks ago, and it just, it just grabbed my attention um, coming from a missionary standpoint, and I want to look at that. Uh, enjoyed the video tonight, and uh, having planted a church, I really appreciate when God calls me in to go plant a church or to replant a church, and uh, I love that visionary spirit. You know, that's not saying just waiting around for God's great miracle to land in their lap. But they're saying, just send me, just give me a piece of dirt and let me find people. I love that, that visionary spirit. And I'm going to be praying for Liberty Baptist Church. Very excited uh, about that. Revelation chapter 2. My kids are excited tonight. They get to hear a new message. Amen. And uh, so uh, it was funny. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, one of my daughters said, you know, Dad, I know you don't have to study to preach that message because I don't have to study to preach it. <laughs> and so, so you know, got to come up with some fresh stuff for their own spiritual uh, <laughs> well-being. All right, Sec uh, Revelation chapter 2, uh, verse 12. The Bible says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. I want to preach on this subject tonight. Satan's seat. Satan's 
seat. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you would help us to see the reality of the world we live in. And Father, sometimes we forget what the Apostle Paul said, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And Father, I pray that you would help me to articulate this message, help me to give honor and glory to you in it. And I pray that you'd help us to see the great desperate need of the hour. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, thank you. You may be seated. Here in these chapters of Revelation, you have Jesus speaking to seven churches in Asia Minor. He, he is addressing each congregational, each congregation personally. He, and through the Apostle John, he is giving them an evaluation. It's kind of a scary thing to think about as a church that Jesus Christ is sending an evaluation to them. And, and in that evaluation, he is, he is giving them exhortations and rebuke and a focus uh, and here in these verses, we have Jesus speaking to the church of Pergamos. And, and right as he gets into what he's going to say to these churches, he, he starts off by saying this in verse 13. He says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. Jesus starts off and says, listen, I know where you are. I know where you live. The city of Pergamos uh, existed in what's now modern-day Turkey on the very western part of the country, about 15 miles inland uh, from the Aegean Sea. It, it was a very strategic city because of its hills uh, and almost mountain area. It was, a, it was a place that was a great military uh, kind of location for one to use as a base or as a stronghold. And so Jesus says, listen, I know where you are, but when Jesus says, I know where you dwell, he's not talking about just the city. He's not just talking about the geographical location. He says in the very next verse, he says he knows where they dwell and the days in which they live in. In other words, he understood the circumstances around where they lived. He knew the things that they were facing. He knew the issues that they were going through. He knew the trials and struggles that they were in. Jesus addresses this church, and I love how he starts it off. He starts it off by saying, hey, I know what you're going through right now. And can I just remind us tonight that Jesus knows where you dwell, and Jesus knows where I dwell, and he knows what's going on in your marriage, and he knows what's going on with your children, and he knows what's going on... Uh, with the doctor's visits, and he knows the grief that you care and the burdens that you bear. He knows the financial struggles. He knows the obstacles and difficulties that face you on a day-to-day -day basis. Jesus not only knows what town you live in, but he is very familiar and aware of the circumstances in which you live in. And he says to them, I, I, I know what you're going through. I, I know where you dwell you know, one of the things that I love about a missions conference is this simple reality. We're not Jesus Christ, so we don't really know where everyone dwells. Jesus knows every group of people in every part of the world, but we don't. We don't know about the people in every country. And what I love about a missions conference is a missions conference is an opportunity for the Word of God and for a missionary to make us aware of where people dwell. For, for missionaries to make us aware of the circumstances and the difficulties and the obstacles and the spiritual challenges 
that other people face. A missions conference is a time where, where we get a global view to the situation of humanity all over this vast earth. And Jesus knows where they dwell. And, and notice what he says about where they dwell. In verse 13 he says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Satan's seat. A seat would be more than, uh, in the biblical time, when you say his seat, we're talking about more than like, hey, go save me a seat in the auditorium. The seat in the New Testament time speaks of like a throne, a place of authority. The seat represents the place where one has authority and the place from which the dignitaries' orders and commands are carried from. We would, we would call the seat of the United States of America the White House. It's the place where the president dwells. And from there, uh, things take place and legislation goes out. And the idea of Satan's seat is, is this. He says, I know that Satan sits there. In other words, his throne is there. And from there... He gives orders, and from there, his authority, and from there, his governance goes out from this city of Pergamos. I want to remind us tonight that Satan is not just a figment of our imagination. Satan is not just some name. Satan is not just some idea, but Satan is a real being who has real power and comes to this earth and makes his authority, and makes his presence, and makes his power very real in this earth in which we live in. And he resides in this world. And he exercises his authority in this world. Which leads me to the question, well, I mean, okay, so, so, so he resides in Pergamos. He has a seat in Pergamos. But how does he exercise his rule? Well, you read about the city of Pergamos, and you find out quite a bit. A couple of the, the biggest things that you find out about Pergamos, first of all, it was, the, it was the focal point of idolatrous worship for all of Asia. Through the Grecian Empire and then the Roman Empire, Pergamos had become the place, it had become the focal point of, of, of Grecian worship for the entire world. If you were to have gone to Pergamos during this time, you would have found an altar over 45 feet high dedicated to the god Zeus. And you would have found another uh, vast temple dedicated to Athena and another uh, temple dedicated to the god of healing. And during that period of time, it was even a place of medicine and healing for the entire region of Asia. People would come and worship that god and learn and get information on how to receive Healing from that God. And so, so Pergamos was known as a focal point, as a central point for the worship of Zeus and Athena uh, and, and all this Grecian worship. But bigger than that, Pergamos was the first place where emperor worship began. The, the emperor uh, Augustine, Augustus, it was the first place that a temple had been built to a Roman emperor for the purpose of worship. So there, get this in your imagination, as the Roman Empire begins to expand, it begins to conquer all of Asia, it begins to establish 
provinces and colonies, and it makes its presence felt, what emerges out of that is not just political, it's not just governmental, it's not just organizational, but now it has become religious as now they are building temples to the emperor of the day and they are worshiping that emperor as a deity and from Pergamus, the worship of the emperor began to disseminate and spread throughout all of Asia. And so the picture that Jesus paints is here is Satan and he is in Pergamus and he is on his throne and how is he exercising his rule? Through false religion. He has raised up Grecian religion. He has raised up Roman idolatry. But primarily, he has raised up the idea of emperor worship. And he is imposing that upon Pergamus. And it is spreading throughout the world. It is Satan's seat. It is where, listen, it, it, is, where, it is where he governs. But notice the extent of this seat in verse 13. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seated. Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not, not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr was slain among you. Do you know how powerful emperor worship got? That as Roman emperor worship began to expand, any, listen, any group of people who would not bow to it would be arrested and martyred. Do you know who that primarily involved? Christianity. Christians, no, no, other religions, they don't bow to anybody. They'll tack another god into their religion, but Christians would not. And so amongst the people of Pergamus, one of their own church members had been taken, had been arrested, and had been martyred. And so the picture is, here is Satan. He is in Pergamus. And through the spirits, that was what First John would call it, the spirit of the messages of idolatry, and through the spirit of the message of emperor worship, he has a following, he has a power, he has a force that is so strong that he is working to snuff out the power of Christianity. That's what Satan's seat is all about. Satan's seat is all about building a religious power that will snuff out the power of Christianity. Now, I don't, know if, I don't know if I could say tonight that Sri Lanka is Satan's seat. I can't see into the principal world. I can't tell you whether Satan, whether Sri Lanka would be the place where Satan's seat is. But I think I could very fairly say this tonight. Satan does have a seat there. And look, I, I grew up in some bad areas. I grew up in L.A. I've, I, I believe that America has a great need. I believe we need churches all over this country. I believe our country is in a desperate situation. And we need the word of God. I, I believe all of that. But can I tell you this? When I went to Sri Lanka, I saw a depth of darkness that I have never seen anything remotely similar in my life. You see, Sri Lanka... Sri Lanka is a country of idolatry. You won't meet an atheist in Sri Lanka. You won't meet a Gnostic or a deist in Sri Lanka. They are all beholden to religions. If you were to land in Sri Lanka, you would find amongst the, the for most of its history, the second most 
popular religion amongst the people of Sri Lanka was Hinduism. And that was primarily observed by the Tamil people. The Tamil people are a people that were brought from, by the Sinhalese from India. They were brought into Sri Lanka to be slaves. And so they were servants. And so they were the impoverished people. But over time they've begun to develop and they've begun to spread out. And, and amongst those Tamil people you, you would find that the bulk of them throughout uh, Sri Lanka's history would have been Hindu. And, and Hinduism is essentially this. It is a religion that believes in an innumerable amount of gods. There are more gods than you can count. And, and they, are, they are given images of darkness and, and the most grotesque faces and, and, and twisting of animals and creatures drawn and put together that the human imagination can conjure are put into images and statues and plastered all over Hindu temples. And essentially what a Hindu does is he spends his time harming himself, sometimes during ceremonies, whipping himself, walking on nails, starving himself, even men laying down and having hooks placed into their backs with ropes being connected to the tusks of an elephant and they will be suspended in air and they will harm themselves for the sole purpose of appeasing the wrath of the multiple millions of gods. Women will stand in stagnant pools of water where the ashes of their ancestors have been burned at the cemetery and then spread or pushed whole into the, to the ashes uh, into the water and they'll stand all around those pools and some of them will stand in the water uh, up to their neck for eight to nine hours and let the sun beat upon their skin and they will do that seeking to appease the wrath of the multiple gods. Hinduism has been the second the second most powerful religion in that country for as long as practically its existence. Everywhere you go in Sri Lanka, you will find Hindu temples. You will find makeshifts, shafts, uh, shacks turned into temples. You will find Hindus worshiping. You will find houses with artwork of their gods drawn all around their houses. But there is another religion that is rising in Sri Lanka that we've heard a lot about in the last couple of weeks. It's particularly the last week. It's Islam. It began when the Moors, the uh, people uh, that were under bondage from another country, moved to Sri Lanka and they were granted safety in the country. And they are a people of Islamic faith. And they, they had been given the eastern, well, they had taken the eastern provinces of Sri Lanka. And there, over the course of decades, Islamic power has begun to rise. And the Middle East has been pumping millions and millions of dollars into Sri Lanka. Mosques have been built everywhere. They even changed some of their rules and policies to draw the Tamils in. So much so now that there is a very strong... You know, where Islam may have been 1% of the religion, now it is 10% of the religion in Sri Lanka. It is bursting, it is growing. And it is nothing to walk around a wall and to turn around and suddenly there is a man, an Islamic man with his wife, covered from head to toe and all you can see are her eyes and the slits of her garb. Such a beautiful, peaceful religion. And over the past few decades, there has been influence from, from radical uh, Islam jihadists that have been moving in and developing cells. And I'm talking rich 
Islamic people in the country, their sons have been raising up and converting over to it. Many of them were a part of the bombing that just took place. And so now you have, as you're driving down the streets of Sri Lanka, you'll look up and you'll see a three-wheeler, like a, they call it a rickshaw or a tuk-tuk. And on the back, you'll see Arabic writing. And that Arabic writing will say, there is no God but Allah. And, on, and in the very place where Colombo Bible Baptist meets, it's meet, it sits in a Muslim region. And on Saturdays and Fridays, when you're having youth meeting or prayer meeting, you will suddenly hear the shrieks of the prayers of the Islams booming throughout the city, piped all over the place. Islam is rising. But I want to tell you, that's not Satan's seat in Sri Lanka. Satan's seat in Sri Lanka is Buddhism. I, I went there, I knew it was a Buddhist country, but I didn't know the extent of the Buddhism. Sri Lanka does what's called Theravada Buddhism. The word Theravada means elder, meaning it is, the, it is the Buddhism that came from the elders who followed Buddha. It is the most ancient form of Buddhism, the truest form of Buddhism. And, and when Hinduism began to rise up again in India... The followers of Buddha shifted their writings and shifted the elders and moved to Sri Lanka. And there they built a monastery. And there they made Sri Lanka the epicenter for Theravada Buddhism. It, listen, it is not just a country. It is the country from Cambodia and Laos and Myanmar and Thailand. All of those countries where they celebrate and worship uh, Theravada Buddhism, they send their monks to Sri Lanka to learn and to practice and to become monks in the same vein as them. It is 80% 80, 80 Buddhist. There are 55, over 55,000 monks who walk the streets and the hills of Sri Lanka. There is probably not a hill that you can look up to in Sri Lanka where you will not find an image of Buddha. There is probably not a street that you can drive down where you will not find some sacred shrine to Buddha. And I'm not talking about little shrines. I'm talking about massive shrines. I'm talking about building shrines. I'm talking about massive architecture, all dedicated to Buddha. Do you know what Buddhism essentially is? Buddhism is essentially this. Buddha taught that to live is to suffer. That's the problem with living, suffering. So the solution to living is to cease suffering. But the only way you cease suffering is to cease living. But there's a problem to that. Because when you die, you do not cease to live. Because inside of every human is what's called, he calls it thirst. By the way, Jesus would agree with that. But, but Buddha just didn't get it. Thirst is a desire for things in life. And that desire is like a cosmological force inside of you that when you die, it brings you back. And that filtered with karma and through other variety of factors brings you back into different tasks and brings you back into different circumstances. And as long as you desire for things of life, you will keep coming back over and over and over. So the solution is this. You must learn to live without desire. You know what a monk is? A monk is a person who has desired to achieve the teachings of Buddha, who has committed themselves to live their entire life without desire, without desiring relationship, without desiring spiritual things, without desiring, I don't even get this, to not desire to even to not desire. 
to completely divorce themselves from all desire so that hopefully over the course of several lifetimes, they can eventually reach nirvana, which is this, to cease to exist. It's a very meaningful existence. And that, listen, and Satan sits on his seat over Sri Lanka and he governs that country and he watches as three-fourths of it gives its life to a belief system that says your purpose is to no longer exist. When you tally up all of the religions of Sri Lanka, they've estimated this, Christians on the ground have estimated there are only 300,000 believers in a country of 22 million people. Listen to me. Satan's seat is so strong there that he has snuffed out Christianity so powerfully that over 21.7 of 22 million people will die and go to hell. Did you hear what I said tonight? Over 21 million of 22 will die and go to hell because Satan sits on his seat. And through the spirits of Buddhism and through the spirits of Hinduism and through the spirits of Islam, he rules and reigns. And for hundreds, me, for hundreds of years, he has kept Christianity from making headway on an island the size of West Virginia. I don't know if it's Satan's only seat, but I am very confident tonight that any place where 21 million people out of 22 are believing a religion that is not Christianity, I am very confident that I can say that he has authority over that country. And I can't imagine how many other countries in this world have the same condition. And so, and so they dwell in Satan's seat. And that, that leads to consequences. Look what he says in verse 13. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and, and, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Okay, so, so he's talking to the church, and the church is, they are living and functioning in a city where Satan has that kind of power, where everybody is worshiping other gods, where they, they are persecuting and even killing Christians. And you know what Jesus knows the tendency or the natural response for the believer is? To let go of Jesus' name. To deny the faith. To say, I'm out. You say, oh no, no, I'd never do that. Okay, you live in a country where, where everybody believes something different, and there's a handful of you in a country of millions of others, and you might die for it, you might feel a little bit of pressure to deny the faith. And Jesus, Jesus knows that. He's acknowledging that, that. That there would be within these believers a, a propensity to say this, I'm not getting involved in Satan's seat, and to back out. I'm telling you tonight, I'm praying for Colombo Bible Baptist Church. I'm praying for Urdu Bible Baptist Church in Sri Lanka. I'm praying for those believers in that church that's sitting there in Colombo 
sitting in a Muslim community and they know that they're, listen, the U.S. Embassy just called Brother Andrew and said, you cannot have services right now. There are more terrorists at large. We believe another strike could come. And I'm praying for those believers that are there because they know that at any time they could step foot into that Muslim community where their church is and everybody else knows that church is and they could be blown up next. And I'm praying for them that they will not let go of the faith, that they will not deny the faith, that they will not give up on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm praying for those Pakistani refugees. Listen, those Pakistani refugees are being attacked all over the country. There, there was just a dad with children who had to flee as men with pipes ran after them and beat him and his son and wanted to kill them because they were Pakistani Muslims. And the Pakistanis don't even have a place to meet now. And they don't even know what they're going to do. And I'm praying for them tonight. May they not let go. May they not deny the faith. May they hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ. But you know, the impact of Satan's seat stretches even further. Because we sit in America... And I'm thankful to be sitting in America. No, no, I, I don't have the perception that, man, we're just a bunch of spoiled Christians and all that. No, no, no. We have experienced the blessings of God. Uh, countries in poverty, most of them experience it because they reject the word of God. And so I praise God for everything that we have. But we are in America, and we are blessed, and we have all these things. But then Jesus Christ breaks into our church and says, Hey, I need people to go. I need people to preach. I need people to plant churches. I need people to go to where Satan's seat is. And as young men, and young women, and college age, and younger, and older, and they hear the call, and they hear the voice of Christ, and they look and they see Satan's seat, they see persecution. They see the fact that they might go to a city and preach and preach and preach and have no converts. They see these places that are completely steeped in idolatry. And they see the government is anti-Christian. Do you know what the tendency of Christians are? To not go. To not surrender. To not give their life for the mission. When I went to Sri Lanka and I saw all that God was using Brother Henry to do, I was thinking to myself... There ought to be a line of men begging to help in this work. But you know what the reality is? It took me three months to replace myself in Idaho, and he's been praying for help for 27 years. Did you hear me? It took me three months to find my replacement in Nampa, Idaho. Brother Henry's been sitting there in his 60s, and he's been there for 27 years, and he doesn't have one yet. Why is that? Do you know why? Because when we look at Satan's seat, our flesh says, no thanks. Uh, I think I'll go somewhere a little easier. I think I'll go somewhere a little more convenient. I, I just sat down a year ago with a man who's heavily involved with a, with a missions air agency that at one time was sending more missionaries than anyone in the United States of America and I asked him about how things were going, and here's what he said. We can't get any young people to commit long-term to missions. Their missions numbers, they went from over 900 missionaries. Now they're under 700. He said, we've got more missionaries coming back and retiring than we can send. And it's very simply this. They will not commit to the mission. Listen, listen. Satan's seat's real. 
Persecution is real. Opposition is real. But here's the problem with it. That, that when God calls many, don't tell me that in a world of 7 billion, Jesus isn't calling more people. I sat down with a graduate just a couple days ago, and he said, Brother David, out of my entire senior class of over 100 graduates, I'm the only one who's going to be a missionary. Now, look, I don't know, I don't, I'm not going to spend my time judging who ought to go where. That's between the Lord. But I know this. I know that God is calling more than one person out of a class to go to the mission field. When there are 7 billion people out there who need the gospel of Christ. Do you know the reality is? It's very easy for us. It's very easy for us to look at Satan's seat and to say, no thanks. No, you don't think we've had some family members say to us, uh, you might want to reconsider this. I had a very close family member of mine look me in the eyes and say to me, what a waste. What a waste. Why? Because Satan's seat is a hard place. And our flesh wants to say, uh, I'm not interested in that. But I want to remind you what the Lord says to this church. In verse 13, he says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. Jesus says, now look, I know everything that's going on there. I know that Antipas has been murdered. I know that you are persecuted. I know that religion is flowing through your city, through your country. I know that Satan, his very presence is there. But he says this. He says, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. You know what that's saying? Jesus says, I know, th I know where you are. I know how difficult it is. I know that you might even die. I know that you might be persecuted. But, I'm, but wait a minute, but I'm not expecting you to leave. I'm not giving you the green to not go. I'm not saying run for your life. I'm saying I have called you there. I have put you there. I have sent you into that city. And I expect you. And I, and I, am, I am asking you. And I am commending you to not run, to not cower, but to hold fast the faith and not deny my name. No, Jesus knew what they would go through. He knew the struggles they would face. But he's saying, I have called you there, so stay there. Listen, Jesus knows that Sri Lanka is a dangerous country. When Jesus called David Hetzer and his family and his two special needs children to go there, he knew what was going to happen Easter Sunday. And, but Jesus doesn't say, hey, wait a minute, I've read a lot of mission stories. I've read a lot of mission stories. And Jesus doesn't say, pause, it's dangerous, don't go. Do you know why? Because Jesus loves those souls in Satan's seat. Jesus loves those millions. Jesus cares about the 22 million that are there in Sri Lanka. That while the chants of the Buddhists are everywhere, you can hardly find the gospel anywhere. And Jesus says, I called you, and I know what you will face, but I am expecting you to go. I am expecting you to hold fast. I am expecting you not to deny my name. You know what Jesus is looking for? Jesus is looking for men like C.T. Studd who once said this, the great missionary to Africa, India, and China, once said this, some want to live within the sound of the church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And he could say it because he did it. 
You know what? You know what? Listen to me tonight. Jesus knows the difficulty of Satan's seat. When Jesus called Adoniram Judson to Burma, he knew he was going to lose three wives and all of his children. He knew. But he wanted to see souls saved for eternity. And so he called them there and said, hold fast my name. No, no, no. We need some young men and some young women who would recognize that there is a billion, there is billions of people out there that are sitting under Satan's seat. They are completely immersed and dominated by false religions and by false spirits. And we need some young men who will be called of God, who will get a burden for a country, get a burden for a city, and they will go and they will say, we may get malaria, we may get persecuted, we may have physical afflictions, we may lose hearing in one ear we may listen we may only have five converts but we are not going to stop we are not going to deny his faith we will hold fast because his word should be declared even where satan's seat is i want you to notice one other thing is pretty powerful look at verse 12 unto the angel of the church in pergamus write these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. This sword was a famous Thracian broadsword, listen, that was used for cavalry charges. It became the symbol of Roman power. The double-edged sword. I love this. Jesus is saying, um, <clears throat> Pergamus, no, no, listen, this is good. It's about to get good. Pergamus, Satan has a seat there, but he doesn't have the sword. Did you hear what I said? No, no, no. Satan's got a seat there. He, he has authority. He, 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 he's martyring. He's killing the Christians. He's spreading his false religion. But Pergamus, let me remind you, he doesn't have all the power. He doesn't have the double-edged sword. And what he's reminding them is that Jesus Christ can pierce through the authority of Satan's seat and in the midst of persecution and in the midst of idolatry and in the midst of the opposition of the Roman Empire, the sword of the Savior can save and spread the gospel and Augustus and Inno Caesar can stop it. He can have the biggest seat but only Jesus has the sword. Hey, the devil may have the seat of Sri Lanka, but he doesn't have the sword tonight. No, he may have Buddhism, and he may have Islam, and he may have Hinduism. No, he may have his Islamic jihadists. He may have his monks. He may have his temples. No, but let me say this tonight. He does not have the sword. I was reminded of this this past February when I went to Sri Lanka. But let me back up. A couple decades ago, the country of Sri Lanka was engulfed in civil war. You saw pictures of it in the video. I'm talking the airport had been bombed. I'm talking the entire northern part of the country was blocked off and had been completely devastated by bombs and by all kinds of fighting. The country was in complete chaos from the civil war. 
As a result, the Tamil people, the families had been broken up. They had been shipped off to concentration camps. Uh, most of the industry that existed in the northern region was completely non-existent. And so you had all these Tamil people with no jobs and no livelihood, but they had families. One of those men was a man named Paul. And Paul was a Tamil, and he was given permission by the Sri Lankan military to move to Colombo by himself and to work a job and to send money back to his family to provide for them. One day, Paul was walking down the street of Colombo by the bus stop, and as he went to the bus stop, he noticed a building right there, and inside of the building were a group of people sitting down, and a large white man that we know as Bhutari Anru, missionary of Sri Lanka, screaming at the top of his lungs. And he thought, hmm, I need to go in and hear what this foreigner is talking about. Paul goes in the building, he sits in the back, and he listens to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The service is over, a typical Sri Lankan fashion. The teas go out and the cakes, and people are fellowshipping, and Paul waits a while. And eventually he approaches Brother Unruh and says, Sir, I'd like to meet you tomorrow. The next day, Paul comes to Brother Unruh's house. They sit at the coffee table, and Paul says this. He says, Sir, I am a Hindu. My father was a Hindu. As far as I can go back, our entire lineage is Hindus. Our homes have been bombed. Our women have been ravaged. We have been left with nothing. And yet with all of that, how is it that I could have everlasting life? Brother Unruh opened the scriptures and obviously had to take a long time to deal with a Hindu. And Paul that night bowed his head and called upon Jesus Christ as his Savior. After that, Paul got serious about the Lord. He began to attend Colombo Bible Baptist Church on Sundays. And then he began to attend Soul Winning on Saturdays. Then he began to attend Bible Institute. And he began to bring his family members, one by one, his sons and his wife. And he brought them to Colombo Bible Baptist. And each one of them got saved. Fast forward, we're in Sri Lanka. Sunday night, I'm preaching at a Tamil congregation... Brother Gobi's church. I love Brother Gobi, man. He, he preaches, got this big bass voice, you know, and he's, he's not that big of a bass. Uh, and he's got this big bass of a voice, and he's interpreting for me, and I mean, he's louder than me, so I'm trying to be louder than him, and I mean, we're, I mean, we're just having an awesome time in that concrete building, preaching the Word of God, and, and the service ends, and this place is packed out with people that they've led to Christ, and they've discipled, and, and uh, I'm watching him, and, and his wife, and his children are playing the violin and the piano, and I find out that Gobi is Paul's son. Then we drive up to the we drive up to the tea field, and I'm preaching for a new church plant, Oneth, and, and they're having service in his house, and, and, and there's so many people there that they put the pulpit in the door jam, and so I'm preaching to the people in the house, and then I'm preaching to the people outside, and there's children sat around here, and then there's, uh, they separate the men and the women, and they've got them sitting over here, and they're sitting over here, and I'm preaching, and we have a great service. I think a couple Hindus got saved, and, and um, I met all these people that were Hindus, and they were going to Bible Institute, and they're saved, and then I find out Honest's wife is Paul's daughter. There was another pastor who was there named Shankar. Shankar is the veteran of all the national pastors. Shankar pastors in the other side of the tea plantation, and God's been using him in a great way. He's just an old chisel war horse. And he brought, listen, there were 50 tea pluckers 
who took the day off. You don't, you don't make any money plucking tea, but they took the day off to ride the train to come to hear me preach that night. And Shonker's there with 50 Tamil tea pluckers. And I meet Shonker, and I find out that Shonker is Paul's other son. Hey, hey. Churches all over the country. Satan may have a seat, but Jesus has the sword. And if Jesus wants to use the Hetzer family, or if Jesus wants to use the McCormicks, or if Jesus wants to use the East Steps, listen to me, it doesn't matter who is seated on the throne, it matters who carries the sword, and Jesus Christ can get his gospel, and it can penetrate the darkest, most vilest, and idolatrous places in the world. Statement. The gospel must stand strong in the very places where Satan is seated. Did you hear what I said tonight? The gospel must stand strong even in the very places where Satan is seated. Number one, a couple statements and we'll be done. Number one, remember the circumstances in which the people of this world are dwelling in. Jesus knows where they dwellest, but we need to remember as we go through this conference, remember this, that three-fourths of this world are living under Satan's power and under Satan's dominion. Remember that most people are dwelling under some false religion that is ensnaring them all over this world. Number two, be willing to go anywhere that Christ calls you. Hey, God calls you to Iraq or Afghanistan or South Africa, or Maine, or Los Angeles, or Nebraska, be willing to go anywhere God calls you to go. Thirdly, give so that missionaries can dwell where Satan sits. When you fill out a card, and you put money in that plate, you're helping people like us, listen, dwell where Satan is seated so that people can be saved when you give. Jesus' message to us tonight is very simple. The gospel must stand strong even where Satan sits. Let's pray.